The Gobbledy Podcast is brought to you by Adventure Treks. I have two 16-year-old daughters who are spending the summer out west, one of them in Oregon and Washington, one of them in British Columbia, traipsing around for three weeks, out in the wilderness, led by a fantastic company called Adventure Treks. The only drawback I have to this trip that is, is that they seem to be making one of them, or they have chosen for one of them, uh, to spend their time in a van listening to this very podcast. That seems like a very odd way for a bunch of teenagers to pass the time heading from camping site to camping site. Otherwise, if you want to send your teens off to the wilderness for a few weeks, I recommend Adventure Treks. Now the podcast. better and that's what I talked to Shireen about. As usual, if you want to reach me, you can email me at jared at sagelet.com. Jared at S-E-A-G-E-L-E-T-T dot com. Now the show. That people across cultures uh, think about how they make decisions and you can actually leverage that, use those ideas to create better campaigns that, uh, that speak very directly to how we make decisions. We, we talked through a, a handful of those ideas in this chat. Uh, the one I keep thinking about is around the endowment effect where people tend to value things they own more than that same item if they don't own it. Uh, and you know that would come into play in marketing where you might say you, you might decide uh, not to poo-poo something, uh, a product that somebody already uses, and rather you would say that, oh, we can make this thing that you think is great even better. There are a whole bunch of concepts like that where you can actually use them to make your campaigns better, and that's what I talked to Shireen about. As usual, if you want to reach me, you can email me at jared at sagelet.com, jared at s-e-a-g-e-l-e-t-t dot com. Now the show. Welcome, Shireen. That's, uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, tell me a little bit about Next Step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we call ourselves a behavioral design agency because we sit at this intersection of um, leveraging behavioral science and how we help our clients design their marketing, growth, product efforts. And then we largely work with a lot of technology companies. So that's really our sweet spot. Um, and um, you know, uh, within like B2B SaaS, FinTech, Enterprise, et cetera. Um, and then my personal background is very different from marketing. I actually come from the engineering world. Uh, so I'm an engineer turned marketeer, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and I think that's maybe the, the root of a little bit of our work and uh, what we do um, come is probably from my uh, personal uh, preferences around having, you know, more uh, rigor and engineering and how we do marketing. So what kind of engineer were you? Uh, electrical engineer and computer science is a combo major. So, uh, but the fun part is that my parents, after I graduated, they're like, okay, can you change the light bulb? I'm like, no, <laughs> 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 not that kind of electrical. <laughs> like I have no idea. <laughs> but you, you could tell them how it works and that, that's all that matters. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Wait, so how did I, I, I'm not sure I've ever met an engineer who's moved to the marketing side of the world. I feel like maybe it's gone the other way. How, why did that happen? How did that happen? Oh boy. Um, yeah. So, so I, I will say this, I, 
I always love um, the the rigor of engineering and math. Like I just, you know, just, you know, in, in school, I um, really loved um, math, uh, maybe a little bit less physics. And so I always, but I always wanted an applied version and engineering felt like a natural progression of that. Um, and then when I actually worked in tech and started doing the work, I was like, oh my goodness, I am stuck in a cubicle. Like I am not interacting with another human being. And the only time that I hear uh, from another human being is where, when the chip is not working. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I, I think it was just not the best fit for maybe my personality type and, and kind of my zones of genius. And so uh, I, you know, took a long journey to really figure out what is it that um, brings me joy and happiness and aligns with uh, my zones of genius and I always wanted to start my own company and um, uh, you know by by way of trial and error uh, stumbled on uh, more like digital design uh, so we started off as doing a lot of like digital products websites etc and then it wasn't until a number of years ago where I discovered behavioral science uh, actually through my boyfriend who's now my husband because uh, he was using behavioral science in, in a series of his um, companies and I just became fascinated. I was like, this is really interesting um, work that you guys are doing. And so I started thinking about, hmm, I wonder if there's like applications of behavioral science inside marketing. And so um, sort of um, continuously stumbling onto the next thing. That's, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. but hold on, we yeah. got to back up. I, I don't know zones of genius. What is zones of genius? Yeah. Um, so zone of genius is the idea that, um, so let me, let me uh, backtrack a little bit. So I also read a lot of positive psychology just because I'm fascinated in everything human. And, um, there's three different levels of happiness. There's like the hedonic happiness, which is like bigger house, bigger car, etc. Um, and then there's a state of flow, which is when you're in a state of flow, you don't really feel time passing. Um, and, um, you know, it could be like you're playing tennis and you love playing tennis, et cetera. And so a zone of genius to some extent comes from that. And the idea is that when you are operating in your zone of genius, you, um, are, you know, fully alive. You don't feel the passage of time. And it's like really aligned with both what you're really good at, plus what you, uh, derive a lot of joy at. And so earlier when we were talking, you were talking about like the 20% was there 20% enjoyment and then the rest, uh, not so much. And so, um, that's really what you're, you know, aiming for is like, how can I during, uh, my work day, make sure that most of my time is being sent, spent in that zone of genius, what I'm like uniquely good at and enjoy. Did, did you think about doing that as a career? That that's fascinating. Um, so th this is not my content, so I, I, I will put in a plug uh, for, we're going to go all over the place today, I have a feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a group that I'm part of, it's called um, Conscious Leadership Group, or CLG. Um, it's a phenomenal framework, I will say. I am um, quite a junkie for all like frameworks of growth, and this has by far been a framework that has been universally like from every aspect of my life, whether it's business, leadership, personal, uh, family, et cetera, has really helped. And so uh, this is one of the concepts that they talk about. And by the way, um, they might be introducing it at Stanford TBD. Huh? They might be starting a program around it. But yeah, it's uh, conscious.is or something like that is is the URL. So the, the, that that's not my work. but. Um, having said that, you could do behavioral science inside organizations 
Um, so that's a whole, um, there's a lot of behavioral scientists that do organizational um, level work. So we're, our swim lane's a little bit more marketing, but you know, I like to dabble. <laughs> no, I, I think it's so interesting. I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because I think it is, especially once you're sort of mid-career, or at least certainly for me, but I think this is true more broadly, it's hard to figure out how to keep going, like what drives you? Because, you know, at some point in your career, maybe you have a family and you have kids and you think, God, that's amazing. I love that part of it, but I also have to put a roof over my head. And after 10 years of that, you might start to think, I, I've started to think, is this how I want to spend my time? And yeah. I think that concept of being spending your time in a way that you don't even notice the time going by mm -hmm. and how do you optimize for that is super. Right. Yeah. I, I, mean, I never thought of it that way, and that, but that's yeah. exactly what it is when I'm working in a way that's enjoyable. Yeah. And I'll give maybe a, a tip for your listeners is one thing we do actually at Next Up with our team is uh, we have everybody look at, like, say, a week or two of their work. And then literally um, bucket each time, like you spent 30 minutes doing X, Y, Z, an hour, whatever. And you tag things as, was this an energy gain or an energy drain or energy neutral? And the general thesis is that if you're operating in your zone of genius, um, you're going to have more things that are energy gains for you. And then the, the contrary is that like the funny thing is, like for me, like for dealing with like legal and operations is a complete drain. Like this is not my genius zone and then some. And so like, even if I have to do it for like 10 or 15 minutes that day, I'm like, ah, the whole day was horrible. <laughs> it's like, I only did it for 15 minutes. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. You know, I, I know that feeling. Like you can feel it, especially when I was working full time in a company and it isn't company specific at all, but you have to do sort of an array of tasks. And yes. some of it, you're kind of in, like you called it flow. And then it comes this grinding halt when I'm like, oh, I have to yeah. fill out somebody's, I don't know, whatever. Like, paperwork. Uh, yeah, yeah, paperwork or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to write a review in this form. It just, you feel it's a physical reaction. Totally. totally. So, all right. So I could talk about that for six hours, <laughs> but at least let's go back. So behavioral science, which you've mentioned a few times, can you just tell me what that is? Yeah. Um, so simply put, uh, we like to say behavioral science is the study of how people really make decisions. And we like to emphasize that word really, uh, because there's another field of study called economics that also looks at how we make decisions that everybody's heard of. Um, and I think that contrast is really important, and especially to marketing, because we've largely you know, unbeknownst to us, have been marketing based on this assumption that the humans that we're dealing with on the other side are always rational. And so if we simply give them more information, more content, more choices, et cetera, they'll do the right thing and make the optimal decision. And as behavioral scientists, we're like, yes, absolutely, humans can be rational, but there's other factors at play. There's people's emotions, um, social factors, the dynamic in a B2B environment, like within the culture of the organization, the you know, uh, culture of their clients, um, and even how an environment is designed both digitally and physically that kind of influences us as humans. And so um, we kind of need to look at the whole picture in order figure, to figure out how to properly market to people. So um, that's, that's what we're up to. So that is 
I mean, that, that, that sheds so much clarity onto, especially in the software world, where marketing is, if I just create enough stuff to tell you, one of those things will be the thing that convinces you. you. And you're saying that is not exactly, it's not how it works. Yeah, yeah. We like to lovingly say, we do this comparison just so people can remember it. Uh, We like to say, we think of the user on the other side a little bit more like Homer Simpson than Spock. (laughs) 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 While we might be dealing and thinking that we have Spocks on the other side, we're we're Homer Simpsons, we're lazy. (laughs) You know, there's like 35,000 decisions a day that we make as humans and we're not making all of them consciously. So, um, yeah. So, so who studies that? Is, you would mentioned sort of economists approach this question in a different way. Do economists do behavioral science? Is that psychologists do do it? Sociologists? Is that, who does that? Yeah, yeah great question. Um, so by the way, um, I use the term behavioral science and behavioral economics interchangeably. Okay. Um, so there's economists and then there's like behavioral economics, like within the academic sector, so to speak. And so the, the field was born out of basically a bunch of researchers and and uh, you know um, people in academia, you know, kind of coming to this realization that the economic models that we have are are not sufficient, and so it generally tends to be that it's a lot of people in academia. There's still a lot of people within academia, but then there's a lot of what we call applied behavioral scientists or applied behavioral econ- uh, economic uh, folks. And what that means is that you operate in the real world. <laughs> like uh, you're trying to influence people, you know, um, within, you know, the corporate environment or, um, you know, um, in, you know, w- w- like governments, NGOs, et cetera, but out of academia. So, But is this, do, do people go to school for this? I, I'm trying to think yes. back to when, a long time ago, when I was, in undergrad, I feel like it was the first time around that time in the 90s when economists were speaking to other people in other disciplines. Yeah. And, yeah. and that you're, you're ending up with something like this where, okay, two disciplines, economics and something else, we're trying to look at how do people make decisions because it isn't, it may not be as rational as we thought on the. the yeah, case. exactly. And yeah, so that's so absolutely correct. So it's, it's a field of study. Um, there's a lot of really great universities um, that like basically have this program. And I would say, I think maybe fair to say in the past like 50 years or so it's starting to get a lot of traction and I would say like most recently we've had a lot of like the Nobel Prize winners be actually behavioral economists or behavioral scientists. Hmm. Um, so um, so yeah it's definitely something that's newer it's getting more traction. Of, so maybe this is just more for me but of the names we're aware of, of people who are not necessarily phds in this uh yeah. are there names of people who we would have heard of maybe in passing who studied this and are they all at stanford yeah yeah great question so um i would say but dan Ariely is a pretty famous israeli behavioral scientist he has done a really amazing job of making this work be accessible and easy for folks to understand um, so he he he's at Duke, um, but he does a lot of work in the within the private sector with like actually various companies within the buckets of like I'd say financial decision making and health. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a pretty famous name. If you've ever uh, read the book like Predictably Irrational, um, he has podcasts, etc. Um, and then there's other folks like Daniel Kahneman, Richard Thaler. These are more of like the angle a little bit more on the academia side, but they're um, pretty like thinking fast and slow yeah. um, are some of the popular books. So 
Um, yeah. Right. So uh, it, it really, I think the whole, I don't know, something about the, I think because really back in my undergrad days was when this was starting, at least I was starting to become aware of it and taking economics classes and then taking psych classes and hearing like, oh no, you know what, these things work together, that it's not one is like the super rational and one is, oh, it's crazy humans have no me, no framework for how they make decisions, that there's there's an intersection of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, when you uh, obviously you deal with uh, with you know you said like software companies and tech, how do you have to bring this concept to companies? Do companies have an idea of how behavioral science fits in with what they're doing? How how are people introduced to this concept? In the yeah, place? great question. Um, so I'd say it it frankly depends a little bit on the audience. So largely, most of the clients that we work with are have like some degree of familiarity with it. They've either heard about it, they might have read a book or two, they might have like listened to like the Freakonomics podcast, things of that nature. Uh, but I, I would say what we're seeing in terms of like the industry, um, the really large corporations, so the Googles, Ubers, Facebooks, all of these companies. Um, all have like now behavioral science teams in-house. So it's like becoming a department um, uh, within like kind of that realm of companies. But then um, there's definitely a, like kind of more smaller companies, mid-market, and even some you know larger Fortune 500 companies that don't have behavioral science teams. So I would say it's a fairly new field. And uh, one challenge actually that we have is because ultimately our work is really about understanding humans and how they make decisions. The, the challenge that we have is that there's application for it across the company, right? Like you can literally use this in marketing, you can use it in sales, you yeah. can use it in product, you can use it internally in HR, like, you know, employee motivation. We talked about organizational yeah. development and stuff. And so that is one challenge that we have is that we don't like, tightly fit in like just within one department. Um, and so in some organizations, they end up like reporting into the CEO. Uh, but um, yeah, I think for us personally, we deal more with companies that want to figure out how they can leverage it. So they're like largely outsourcing it to us um, to help them bring behavioral science, um, you know, in, in the contexts that we play. Uh, but yeah, it's, it is, I would say a challenge overall for for the field of study just because you know we're still trying to figure out where where within the organization yeah. <laughs> can we go <laughs> so, so do they know what behavioral science can bring to their organization do they have a misconception about what that is how, yeah. how well versed are they when you have these conversations um i think it tends to vary quite a bit it varies from not quite sure to like, oh no, we actually, you know, used it in my prior company and we like clearly yeah. see the value, et cetera. So it, it, for at least what we see on the receiving side of it, uh, it tends to be, uh, you know, uh, very varied. I, I will say this, uh, there is, um, there's maybe a little bit of a misconception though about the field, which is, um, so one thing worth noting is that the whole field is born out of um, doing experiments. So our whole philosophy is that as humans, there's so much going on and you can't like, 
easily say like humans are like this way or that way. We're very complicated creatures. And so when we're faced with a challenge or situation where we're trying to understand, okay, how would somebody make a decision in this context or how do we nudge people to a certain behavior? We generally, our tools kit, so to speak, is running experiments. Um, and I think the one thing that happens a lot of times when, especially when people are more new to it, uh, we get like very jazzed and excited about the principles and like the ideas that behavioral science is born out of. And then we think that they will universally apply without doing the experiments. So we kind of think like, oh, okay. I like read somewhere that like, um, you know, humans are more mo motivated by like the endowment effect. So like, let me figure out how to apply endowment effect in here. And um, while there are certain principles and certain ideas where yeah, you're probably fine not needing to run a research experiment to implement it and it should it should work. There are other areas where it's like, okay, it's complicated, you might wanna test this. So I'd say that's the one thing that we um, tend to spend a lot of time kind of educating folks on um, is the necessity of um, making sure that you're running proper experiments and making sure it doesn't, you know, backfire. <laughs> so is, is there pushback on that? Because that's a complicated, that's a complicated idea that we know these are true, that these yeah. principles are true, but in this specific situation, it may not play out the way that you think. Right, exactly. You have to run the experiment. Yeah. It, do people get that? Do people get that? Yeah. It's almost like two opposite ideas, but they, they go hand in hand. But yeah, well, I would say this, and this is another kind of going back to with the homers and uh, yeah. the homer substance and the spots. So it's, it's the challenge that we have too. Is like, as humans, we're lazy. We like <laughs> to take shortcuts, and that's a good thing. We've evolved based on heuristics and shortcuts. Like, if we yeah. literally had to like make every single decision you know, sit down and decide, like, we would get nothing done. So it's very natural in human nature to be like, ah, like, let me just apply this stuff. And like to pause and figure out running an experiment and uh, testing it. Yeah, it, it is. Um, uh, it is counterintuitive. But I would say this, um, I think on the flip side of it, uh, I feel like, uh, it, when we deal with like marketing departments, and especially uh, when there's like uh, kind of in battle within like the exec team of like marketing things, we should go this way. The executive team thinks we should go this way. Product thinks we should go that way. Putting stuff to test and experiment is the best and easiest way to like, just let the data speak yeah. and kind of resolve that conflict and kind of get away from what we call like the madman approach. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it definitely has some benefits, but yes, it is, you know, it is a mental thing to, to get over of like, to do it right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so uh, you had mentioned, I wanted to talk about some of these principles and you mentioned mm -hmm. endowment effects. So let's start there. There's, there were four principles I wanted to dig into. Why don't we start with endowment effect? Because that, since I heard, I heard it from you recently and it, this thing kind of opened up a whole world of thinking about how do we talk about software. So can you tell yeah. everyone what yeah. the endowment effect is and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, um, so the idea with the endowment effect is that as humans, we basically tend to overvalue something that we already um, have a sense of ownership towards. So the simple way to think about it is like, um, when you want to sell your home or your car, uh, you largely kind of think it's worth more than what the market is willing yep. to pay for it. So that's why we have a really hard time parting with it. Um, and by, by the way, the fun research behind it is like in the lab, they gave people 
like mugs and they had them hold the mug for a period of time um, versus a mug that they had not hold, held in their hands. And then they asked people to like say like, how much would you, uh, how much would we need to pay you to part with the mug? And if I had literally just held this and felt any sense of ownership towards it, um, I would put a higher dollar amount yeah. on it. So, um, so yeah, so, so where this becomes important, especially in a context of um, like software sales uh, and where, where we see it work well is that a lot of times um, if you have situations where you um, have gotten somebody to adopt your solution, they already bought in, they're using it um, and um, you want them to like say renew. It's, it's a good thing to think about, like, could I use the endowment effect to remind people that they've already invested in this technology, bringing it into their organization, et cetera. And, um, you know, we want to show them how to get the most out of it um, and, and so forth. So, um, and then certain words I'll say that are fun to use in the context of endowment effect. So using the word claim uh, versus sign up. Claim. So, mm -hmm. so the word claim makes you think I already own this. I'm simply claiming this. So claim your benefits as opposed to sign up for this. Uh, we did this project with a, with a healthcare tech company where they were, um, you know, th their end client were, you know, the anthems and blue crosses, blue shields of the world. And they were trying to get people to um, sign up for these various health plans. And we noticed that when we, we ran our experiments and we changed language and when we kind of talked about these benefits in the, in the context of like, hey, being an employee of this company, you've already earned this. So now come claim it. Yeah. Um, like right. literally our conversion rates like went through the roof as opposed to like, come sign up for our health plan. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love so, that. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I feel like that's like an old, and maybe all of these are kind of old school direct marketing principles. Yes. Yes. So I will say this. I'm glad that you brought this up because um, I think, so by the way, there's just for context for your audience, there's probably close to 300 research back principles like endowment yeah. being one of them uh, that exists. And a lot of these principles tend to be kind of more evolutionary in nature around like how we've evolved as humans. And it's yeah. kind of more of uh, what activates our like limbic brain, the emotional brain, et cetera. And so good marketeers and good salespeople inherently like just intuitively they might not know the names yeah. but they might have a lot of these things like uh storytelling is another one like you hear the idea of storytelling now in marketing and everybody's saying like tell your story um in behavioral science we call it narrative bias we just have funky words for things <laughs> like it's the same thing <laughs> yeah, yeah so. but the endowment effect piece that i've noticed since hearing about this is i now have like this total aversion to when i see websites kind of excuse the language, they sort of crap on what you have now. Like, mm -hmm. oh, the way you're, the, kind of the way you're doing it is wrong, or this is making your team miserable, or something of like discounting what you have. The decision you, the thing you own, saying it's garbage, this thing is better, compared to, oh, this thing you have is valuable, I can make it more valuable, I can make it better, the thing you have is good, I can help you make it great, rather than the thing you have is garbage, you need us. Because I, the, the whole concept of like, well, no, if someone already thinks it's really valuable, convincing them otherwise, their first reaction is going to be really defensive. 
Right. They're not going to say, oh, thanks for telling me this decision I made was bad and the thing I think is valuable is not. Like right. already, like even as I say it, like, it makes me tense yeah. up. Totally. And totally. I, now I see it all the time and I just want to yeah. write to companies and tell them to stop doing that. Yeah. Which I'm doing. Yeah. I, I, that's what I'm doing for a living now. Yeah. So, okay, so that's, uh, that's endowment effect. Let's talk about loss aversion because with the stock market where it is now, yeah. I'm noticing this in my real life. Can you talk a little bit about loss aversion? Yeah. So I'll, I will asterisk by saying loss aversion is a little bit of a controversial one okay. um, because in certain situations it replicates in certain situations it doesn't replicate. Um, but largely the idea with loss aversion is that as humans, um, we tend to, and by the way, notice how every time I say this, I say tend to, because I'm basically pointing to the fact that you can't say like, this is yeah. absolute, right? Uh, so we tend to uh, feel losses twice as much as gain. And so the simple example would be you're walking down the street, you lose a hundred bucks, that feels twice as painful as finding a hundred bucks. Um, and so how that kind of translates into more in, in a, you know, say B2B marketing angle is that a lot of times we're trying to figure out kind of what's the motivation behind, say, somebody wanting to adopt your solution. And, um, and, and the reality is that, like, it could be that you have um, like a portion of your audience or maybe all of your audience that is what we call prevention oriented. So like largely what that means is that these people are trying to prevent losses. Yeah. Um, so they, they're trying to figure out how does your product somehow protect me from something. Uh, and that could be lost productivity, time, operational efficiency, et cetera. Um, and then you have another camp of people that are what might be like more what we call promotion oriented or they're more gain oriented. So they like having messaging that talks about what they can gain from your product or solution uh, might actually work better on them. Um, and I think the, the, the thing that I would say we see frankly with a lot of our technology companies is, um, and it intuitively makes a ton of sense, like largely you're bringing a new product or solution to the marketplace. You're disrupting something. Yeah. You're disrupting business the way it was done. And so it's a very natural tendency to want to talk about your solution in that more promotion-oriented language around what are all the things you can gain and here are all the features and benefits and so and so forth. And, and I think the thought process here is that, and by the way, this is one area that absolutely experiments is absolutely necessary because you just don't know what's going to motivate the audience. Um, but the, the, the general idea is that that's an area to test to see, oh, you know, how do I frame this language um, around these products and solutions and its benefits to my audience? So I'll give you a fun one. Um, I see the folks at Conversion XL, um, they do really great work. And um, I remember they had this on their copy one time and I thought it was quite clever. Um, but they said something like, your website is leaking money. We help fix the leaks. <laughs> and like, oh, sorry, sorry. You're, you're, sorry, your website is leaking money. We help plug the leaks so you can, you know, get more revenue out of it. And I felt like, uh, first of all, it's like funny. You remember yeah. that. Uh, but it's like really a great job of like tapping into that um, prevention mindset of like, it's less about promotion of like, okay, here's what you can gain by increasing your conversion. It's like, Hey, you're losing, you're leaving money on the table and we're helping you kind of fill in that gap. 
Well, I think they do two things there with that plus clever copy, which also I see way too little of in software. That just the yeah. whole concept of like you can use humor, right? And or you know puns, plays on words. There's yeah. unexpected twists. There's because it's so unusual in software. I think it can be really powerful. And then when you couple it with when you think about what copy you're going to write, I think using these principles as a way to try different things rather than, oh, this is absolutely how things right. work yeah. is, I think it's really helpful. I think having, having yeah. a framework for how to think about that is, is unbelievably helpful for marketers. Yeah. And I feel like um, B2C marketeers tend to get that too. Yeah. Like when you're dealing with, like, it's funny, like I use the analogy of like, imagine if like Coke like a B2B marketeer was to talk about Coke, we'd start going to like, well, it has this much carbon and it's black. <laughs> like, yeah. like, well, commercials are not not about that at all. <laughs> oh, no, I, I've thought about making web, I was gonna, there's a period where I was thinking about making SaaS websites for cereals. Mm. Be like one for Cheerios, where it's like for humans with a hunger, uh, who want to decrease their hunger levels, this oat-based blow up, you know? Yeah. Because uh, no, nobody thinks like that or talks like that. And there's a long yeah. history of success in B2C and using language that we've thrown <laughs> out the window entirely. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about relative choices because that, that's, that's, that was a hot topic for uh, in, in the popular book media for a while. So that, let's, let's talk yeah. a little bit about what that is. Yeah. Um, so that's another principle um, and that general idea is that basically as humans, we really have a hard time making our decisions in a vacuum. And we, so as a result, we like to kind of use uh, like relative things. So the simple example would be like the last time you went to buy a car, chances are you test drove like a couple of different cars. Um, same thing with the house, same thing with dating, all of that gets um, and so um, it, 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 the, the general idea is that it's only when we put something relative to something else that it makes it easier for us to then figure out, okay, what are my preferences around this solution? Um, now, um, knowing that, especially in a B2B context, um, I, I can't frankly recall the last time that I made a decision with thinking like, I'm going to just buy this product without thinking, okay, what are other solution providers? Um, and, and then the other thing that you want to think about is that that relatively frame doesn't necessarily mean it's always your other competitors. Right. It could be like a status quo bias, uh, which is like the way I was doing business as usual. It could be not changing is your competitor. And that frankly tends to be like the, the hardest competitor to overcome because again, we're lazy as, as yep. human beings and, and so forth. So um, the general thesis is that a very um, it, it's very rare that we see marketeers draw, uh, uh, um, kind of draw those relative comparisons and the, how they talk about their solution. And we think that it's a really big missed opportunity because the reality is that your prospect is doing that anyway. And then the challenge is that your prospect is probably the person that is least knowledgeable about the nuances between your solution and how they're doing it in-house or a competitor, et cetera. And so as a marketeer, you're much better positioned to help them understand kind of those nuances and, and, and so forth. And so this would be one principle that I would, I would say, feel pretty good, use it, 
don't really need, I mean, you could run experiments to like figure out like what are the best ways to frame it against your competition, but the general thesis of like relativity is um, is one that I feel pretty good saying, like just start thinking about how you can introduce it. And I think this is where there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in software. And I think uh, it ties in with positioning. Right. Sorry, cough. <laughs> it, it ties in with positioning in that I think software companies do a pretty poor job of really positioning themselves against who are they, what is the alternative? Because mm -hmm. they assume the alternative is the other four companies in the Gartner quadrants, right. but right. it's not. And I just wrote a piece about, I thought one of the geniuses of Warby Parker was they positioned themselves against Luxottica's $500 glasses, even right. though there were other online inexpensive glasses companies, but they never, ever, ever, ever talked about that. It was right. always the $500. And yeah. that was brilliant. They positioned it as that's the alternative. Software companies rarely do that. But to your point, the status quo is most often who you're positioned against. Right. And talking about, well, what's then you can bring in some of these other things, loss aversion and some of the other things we talked right. about. How do you how do you say how you're better? But yeah, that Absolutely. is such an such an opportunity that I rarely see. Yeah, and I think you, uh, as you were speaking, you brought up another behavioral science concept, which is called anchoring, and okay. that's another one that we're all familiar. So that's always a really good way, especially in pricing. You see that a lot. Unfortunately, is that um, you basically anchor people, and the general the, the general idea there is that as humans, we basically get over um, indexed on the first piece of information that we're given, and so if that first piece of information is you anchor me to say like. I don't know, like, you know, this pair of glasses is $500. And then you say, okay, but ours is like 50. I just created a mental anchor for you. That 50 all of a sudden feels um, uh, really good. And that's, by the way, the challenge that a lot of times uh, software companies that do freemiums have is they anchor people the other way yep. <laughs> into free. And now they got to go back up and try to re-anchor them, which becomes, um, you know, quite challenging. How, how do you re-anchor in that situation? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Can you, or is it just an inherent problem? Is that an inherent problem in freemium? Yeah, the, it's an, it's a, it's not an easy problem. I'd say like, there's no, uh, I don't think there's a magic fix for it. Um, so th there'd be a lot of things to um, kind of think about. Like, for example, uh, you could do like, um, like something like the, that's like what we call like pre-commitment, which is this general idea that um, I get somebody to pre-commit to a future behavior. Um, so like, for example, um, I get you to pre-commit to like working out or eating healthy or something like that. And so hypothetically speaking, you could have it where, you know, you get people to like pre-commit to the paid option and then, you know, they get a trial for free or things of that nature. But um, yeah, that's that's one where I would kind of definitely be running experiments and trying to see what works. So we talked. We said we would talk about four principles. We talked about anchoring, loss aversion, relative <laughs> choices, and the endowment effect. Shreen Orezi, this has been amazing. Of next step, thank you so My much. Pleasure. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Jared. Great uh, connecting with you.